Good evening and welcome to the world of the Seltronticus. The wonderful world of the Seltronticus. <clears throat> Let's begin with our usual chant. Good morning and all sentient beings and everything that are heard tonight. I'd like to take this evening to do it all. Good morning and all sentient beings and everything that are heard from my heart. I'd take this evening to do it all. Good morning and all sentient beings and everything that are heard from my heart. I'd take this evening to do it Whatever the virtues of the many fields of knowledge, all exist on the path of omniscience. May these arise in the clear mirror of intellect, all minds retreat to each accomplished death. <clears throat> Good evening. So, uh, Sautrantica School is sort of a foundational system of tenets, the Buddhist tradition upon which the other schools uh, that come afterwards um, sort of react to and relate to because <coughs> there's a bit of a divergence after Sautrantika between the two remaining schools which are the Chit excuse me the Chittamatra. Oh what do we got? Oh I don't have my uh <laughs> I plugged in. How's that? Well, much better. Do I need to repeat any of that or basically got it? Yeah. So the schools after Sautrantika basically split. Chichamatra goes one way and uh, Madhyamaka goes a somewhat different way. So uh, it really provides the, uh, the reference point for those two schools since they are the two <coughs> main schools of the Mahayana tradition. So I thought tonight we can uh, spend some more time on the Sautrantika and uh, look at uh, the remainder of the chapter in our main text, which I found to be better, much more palatable than the earlier section on the, the specifically generally characterized. And then let's also look at uh, what I circulated from another version. <coughs> Excuse me. And I just want to start with uh, some simple outlines so you get a feel for what are, what are the topics covered when we talk about the tenets of the schools? What is the, uh, the sort of ground that's covered? So in the other text uh, that I circulated, there is, uh, in that book, it's called Cutting Through Appearances. And it has, uh, there's two parts to that book. One is a, an extensive meditation on emptiness, which is quite good. And uh, sort of uh, very much epitomizes the Galupa system. <clears throat> and then there's a text on tenants which is uh, relatively short in the, well, sort of medium length in the scheme of uh, Galutpa Tenet system texts. 
the largest one being one by Jamyang Shepa, and uh, the, the shortest one being by Jimmy Fallon, I think his name is. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> I can't remember the guy's name. But the middle one is by uh, Kun. The G is pronounced like a K. Kun Jok Jigme Wangpo. And uh, he goes through the non-Buddhist schools and the four main Buddhist schools and their divisions, and similar to our current text. And here's the general outline of each section, the definition of the school, the sub-schools, the etymology of the name of the school, the assertion of tenets. has two parts, bases, and bases means like um, <coughs> things established bases so established bases mean means established as substantially existent and established as substantially existent by definition means either they the thing so-called thing or phenomena or dharma can be or current or is the object of a direct valid cognition, non-conceptual valid cognition, is the requirement for being substantially established. Uh, so there's the phenomena, assertions on phenomena, then there's assertions on the paths and the fruits of the paths. And so <coughs> I've collected all the material on the paths from this text, cutting to appearances and some other. Uh, uh, there's another nice, succinct presentation, and uh, we'll go through those all in one. Hopefully, I, I think it's doable in one class because it's not that extensive and complicated, and I think we've we've all seen much of it before. So we'll go through the paths on a different day. <clears throat> but in Konchok Jigme Wangpo's version and um, basically all other versions of the Tenet's text, they, they also have this assertions on the paths. But our text focuses on the, on the views, so assertions on phenomena or the bases. And there's two types. There's objects and object possessors. And uh, we went through those separately. Last fall, we went through objects, knowable objects, and then last winter, we went through object possessors or the knowable, knowing subjects, subjects, who, the knowers of objects. You see here the example, the two truths. And uh, the two truths in the sense of like, what are the entities that make up the relative truth? What are the entities that make up the ultimate truth? And then in object possessors, we have persons, consciousnesses, and terms, definition of some terms. Okay, so that's <coughs> the sort of uh, largest picture. Let's take a look at the uh, a summary of the Sautrantika school by Kunchok Jigme Wangpo. It's really by him, Lama Zopa. Uh, gives a commentary on his text in this book, Cutting Through Appearances. 
So we have, as we saw before, definition, subschools, etymology, assertions on the bases, assertions regarding objects. We have the two truths, the real ultimates, the relatives, and then a discussion of obscured awareness and conceptual consciousness, which uh, sort of comes out of the way that ultimates and relatives are defined in the sutra school, Sautrantika school. Um, three types of objects. There's on the subject side, there's the appearing object that appears in the sense faculty. And on the so-called object side, there's the uh, conceived object, which is the object of conceptual consciousnesses exclusively. And those are generic images. <clears throat> and then there's the object of engagement or the engaged object in the case of direct valid cognitions, which are specifically characterized phenomena i.e. things. Other ways that phenomena can be characterized that bring out the nuances of their um, uh, characteristics or qualities is the uh, breaking down between specifically and generally characterized phenomena, which we had an extensive presentation on in our text, negative and positive phenomena, manifest and hidden, uh, phenomena through the three times and the single and different. And <coughs> we also we had sort of references to, to, to these in uh, our presentation so far. Object possessors we saw before persons, consciousnesses, and terms. And to drill down a little bit more, we have uh, Just to, uh, let's see, really look at Sautrantika since it's so important. We have, um, they assert true existence. <coughs> is the definition of the Sutra school is defined as those who assert external objects are real and that there is self-awareness in this translator's terminology, self-cognizing consciousness. There's two divisions of the Sautrantika school, those following scriptures who use the sutras, the scripture of the Buddha as their authority, and those following reasoning, which is Dharmakirti and Dignaga. And uh, types of assertions on the basis or bases of our experience, objects or what are its known, and object possessors is what is what knows. Let's see, the, the ultimate is the specifically characterized phenomena, ultimate truth in this view. Those phenomena which can perform a function, they, it exists by way of its specific nature. <coughs> uh, each phenomena, each ultimate phenomena has a specific nature, which is what characterizes it as what it is, and uh, is the function, encapsulates its function, which is either an activity or a, uh, the ability to be observed by direct valid cognition. <coughs> Ultimate truth as an object has its own subsistence, <coughs> which is a, a different way of saying substantially existent, that is without depending on concepts or imputation, i.e. it is a functioning thing 
it's specific, it's impermanent, it's compounded, and it's truly existent. All being synonymous in this case, relatives are generally characterized phenomena. Anything ascribed to objects or objects that it uses conceptually in any way. Generally characterized conceptual objects. Uh, let's see, obscured and conceptual consciousness is obscured from direct perception, such as the phenomena that are beyond the range of our vision. Obscured truth only exists by imputation or concept, i.e. non-functioning and truth for an obscured awareness, generally characterized, permanent, uncompounded, false, yet existent. I'm sorry, not phenomena that are beyond our range of vision, but this is phenomena of a uh, obscured mind. <clears throat> phenomena of an obscured mind, such as relative phenomena, or synonymous with relative phenomena, are obscured objects that exist only by imputation or concept. They're non-functioning, and uh, therefore they're a truth for an obscured awareness. They're generally characterized permanent and the same in the sense of not instantaneously changing. They're uncompounded and they're false, yet they're existent in this tradition. <coughs> uh, the self of phenomena and persons is an example of an obscured and false truth. It does not exist even conventionally. The appearing object um, is, uh, is what happens on the subject side of the equation. And uh, in, uh, in the conceptual cognition, we have uh, the appearance of images in the mind and the obscuration that um, conceptual consciousness is experienced is that they merge the conceptual image with the real object. Uh, let's skip this. I want to look at uh, what we're going to go through tonight. Assertions regarding object possessors or subjects, aggregates are continuum as a continuum are the person so there's this idea of the person uh barbara um the audio is a little um weird but maybe it's just me anybody else having trouble hearing what do you guys think <clears throat> my voice is a little weak tonight because of um... i don't i mean i'm thinking it's not that because it just sounds but uh, maybe it's it's me. So, all right. I'll just speak more clearly. How's that? Good. Thank you for mentioning it. Oh, it's 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 oh it's fine. I I think it's it must be me. Okay. Thank you. So, what is the person? The person is the the entity that. Um, uh, accumulates karma. The person is the entity that accumulates karma in all traditions of Buddhism, and uh, each tradition has a different way of describing the person. 
and in the sutra school, the division of sutra school of those who follow scriptures, the aggregates or the continuum of the aggregates are the person. And, <coughs> excuse me, and those following reasoning, Dignaga Dharma Kirti world, the mental consciousness is said to be the person, the locus for the uh, conceptual, generally characterized phenomena, the image called the person. And it very much is a generally characterized phenomena. There's two types of consciousnesses. There's prime and non-prime. Prime is a new, incontrovertible knower, i.e. a valid knower. And there's four of those. I'm sorry, there's, there's two types of prime knowers or consciousnesses. There's a direct prime cognizer and there's an inferential. So we've seen this breakdown a number of times, direct and inferential cognizers. These different, the gloss that's being placed on the situation here is prime versus not prime, uh, non-prime. And that's uh, basically this issue of um, a new cognition versus a subsequent cognition. In, the, uh, in uh, one of the last courses, our text used the term subsequent cognizer as opposed to a prime or initial cognizer. And there's <clears throat> this vibe, this very heavy vibe that prime cognizers, the first moment of cognition of a valid cognition has um, enormous weight, whereas subsequent moments of that same object, even though uh, they might be direct valid cognitions are not as powerful. Direct cognitions, direct prime cognitions are four types, sense, mental, self-cognizing, or reflexive, and yogic direct cognition. Non-prime includes subsequent cognitions that we talked about, also wrong consciousnesses, mistaken in regards to the object of an engagement, such as seeing floaters in the eye. Doubt. There's different types of doubt, and we've talked about those before. Correct assumption, which is a conceptual consciousness that just happens to understand something correctly based on uh, sort of a uh, certain level of logical assumption, but not at the level of an inference that includes the three modes of a syllogism. And then awareness as to which an object it appears but is not noticed. Terms, definition. <clears throat> a definition is an object of hearing that causes the meaning of its object to be understood. The definition of a definition is sort of an important definition because <laughs> it sort of sets the the pace for all subsequent, so to speak, definitions. So it's the prime definition. Uh, two types of terms of objects of expression. There's terms that express types, like um, citrus versus other types of fruit, and terms that express collections, such as forests. Uh, two types of terms for manners of expression, terms that express qualities, in terms that express the, uh, the that which possesses qualities. 
<coughs> okay, so <coughs> this is a very much simpler presentation, and the outline pretty much went through it. So I think we've just covered all this. So, okay, let's come back to our text and finish up its presentation, which uh, let's start on page 305, which is the section called Comprehending Awareness. So again, we're in our, our main book, Science and Philosophy in the Indian Buddhist Classics. The Sautrantika School, Comprehending Awareness. In accordance with what appears in such works as Dignaga's Compendium of Valid Knowledge and Dharmakirti's Exposition of <coughs> Valid Knowledge, Sautrantika asserts that there are two valid means of knowledge, direct perception and inference, that there are two types of direct valid knowledge, reflexive awareness and awareness of what is other. <coughs> so this is another way of uh, dividing the different types of direct valid cognition that we didn't see in the other text. The other text just went and listed the four types of direct valid cognition. This one says, well, there's, there's two categories of direct valid cognitions. There's self-awarenesses and other awarenesses. And self-awareness includes self-awareness. <laughs> and other awarenesses includes sense-direct uh, cognition, mental-direct cognition, and yogic-direct cognition. You might ask, is, is yogic-direct cognition really an uh, other awareness? In what sense is it another awareness? And in this school, it is another awareness because its uh, its object of observation is the true nature of phenomena, which are held to be truly existence and substantially existent phenomena. <coughs> and that there are three types of awareness of what is other sense direct perception that relies on the physical sense faculty as its unique, meaning meaning its own dominant condition. Dominant condition is the sense faculty condition. Mental direct perception that relies on just the mind as its dominant condition. And yogic direct perception that relies on the union of serenity and insight as its dominant condition. <clears throat> Which is sort of unusual because usually the dominant condition is said to be a, a sense faculty. And here it's said to be the experience of meditation of uh, shamatha and vipassana conjoined. The divisions of direct perception has already been explained and uh, valid knowledge and its effects. An essential point related to how direct perception is posited as well as the proofs for the two types of awareness that establish valid knowledge, which is direct and inferential, will be discussed extensively in a different volume, <clears throat> in volume four. The system asserts that there are three conditions for sense-direct perception. The observed object condition, which is the so-called outside object, the external object, the thing out there, which is the external object that's apprehended, the dominant condition, which is the sense faculty that 
is its foundation and the immediately preceding condition which is the mind is the minds which is the minds that arise earlier or immediately before or which are the minds that arise immediately earlier or immediately before <clears throat> meaning what what type of cognition happened in the moment before the, the moment of cognition that you're focused on analyzing. <clears throat> Excuse me. Many important points, such as how these arise, how they assert the collections of consciousness to be six, the 51 mental factors as they appear in Dignaga's compendium, as well as how they assert that minds and mental factors are the same entity. They have the five congruences, if you remember have already been explained in the second volume. We went through those. Vaibhashika does not assert self-experiencing consciousness or reflexive awareness. However, Sautrantika does, and Shubhagupta's text says, just the butter lamp illuminates itself and others. So consciousness also has objects of two natures. And uh, the sentences after basically just repeat the phrase, and therefore they assert in the middle of the subsequent paragraph in accordance with this passage that a single consciousness has two natures or modes the aspect of apprehending the internal object and the aspect of apprehending the external one shaitari repeats the same thing skipping that turning to the reasonings that prove reflexive awareness the primary one is found in dignaga's compendium which says it is proof through being recalled at a later time that is it is proved by the fact of memory in addition so he's talking about how is self-awareness proved and <coughs> it's proved by the fact that when we remember something we remember experiencing it um, in addition in his exposition of valid knowledge dharmakirti says pleasure and so forth do not depend on something different is a little obscure that is at the same time that the sense consciousness that cognizes an external object becomes manifest and awareness of its own feelings such as pleasure must be posited so when we see an object of uh, of pleasure or experience an object of pleasure through any of our five senses we also experience pleasure so there's that other other awareness of the object and the self-awareness of the uh, um, the feeling tone. If reflexive awareness did not exist, it would lead to the most absurd consequences, such as that a mind that apprehends a long string of letters would not be possible. <laughs> In other words, uh, re just reading sentences like we're doing now would not be possible because you wouldn't remember the letters that came before the current letters, supposedly. These points set forth extensively in the direct perception chapter of Dharmakirti's exposition must be accepted as the Sautrantika system as well. Uh, when he says as well, it's a little that's a little bit of an odd phrase. And they're, what they're not explaining is it's also the foundation for the Chittamatra system. The argument that the two masters of valid cognition used to prove reflexive awareness are closely related to their arguments for the two modes of awareness 
and these will be analyzed later <laughs> to keep listing all these things that they're not going to talk about here. Another position unique to Sautrantika, which means not shared with Vabhashika, is that uh, there's non-conceptual mental direct perception in which a sense consciousness serves as the immediately preceding condition and for which, like a sense consciousness, its object of apprehension is things such as external form. <clears throat> so this is a clunky way of describing mental direct perception, which happens in a split second after sense direct perception. So they say um, there's a non-conceptual mental direct which is a sort of uh, duplication or redundant rather with non-conceptual perception in which a sense consciousness serves as an immediately preceding condition. Um, so the mental direct perception basically takes the, <clears throat> uh, the, the prior moment of consciousness of a sense direct perception as its basis or condition and like a sense consciousness, its object of apprehension is things such as external forms. <clears throat> so it has the same um, object, or uh, what do they call it? The uh, object condition, the observed object condition of a mental direct perception is the same as that of a sense direct perception. It is the so-called outer object. Um, but what we see clarified soon is that it's the um, aspect or the reflection of that, <clears throat> it's the aspect or the reflection of that outer object in the sense faculty, which in this case is the mental sense faculty. They assert that this is set forth in a sutra that says monk's knowledge of form has two aspects. It relies on the eye and the mind, which is a very interesting situation or case of like uh, they always want to have uh, sutra support for for their views and uh, so they have this phrase attributed to the buddha that indicates there's more than just eye consciousness or sense consciousness that goes on in the perception of a uh, sense object and uh, you can sort of see how they could could use that, that sort of makes sense. <clears throat> the existence of such mental direct value knowledge is disputed by certain other individuals and uh, other schools. And uh, let's see, they assert that if there were mental direct valid knowledge, either it would apprehend exactly what the earlier sense direct perception had already apprehended, or it would apprehend something that the sense direct perception had not apprehended. That's a reasonable argument that it's either the same or different. In the first case, <clears throat> if it apprehended something previously apprehended by the sense direct perception, it would not be a valid means of knowledge because it can only be valid if it's an initial perception. It's a subsequent, in this case, subsequent perception. In the second case, if the mental direct perception apprehended an object that was not apprehended by sense direct perception, then even a blind person would be able to see things such as forms because even without the eyes, the mental direct perception would directly apprehend form, which is a very interesting argument that 
if the mental direct perception doesn't need the as seeing something different than the sense direct perception, then why do you need the sense direct perception? And Dharmakirti responds it responds, if it apprehended what was experienced before the mind would not be a valid means of knowledge. If it apprehended what was not seen, even the blind would see objects. Sorry, that just repeats the um, the problem. In the system of the proponents of valid knowledge, the mental direct perception that apprehends form apprehends its own object, which is different from the object apprehended by the sense direct perception apprehending form that precedes it. Therefore, it's not a subsequent cognition. So they took care of case one. It's not a subsequent cognition. It sees something different. And secondly, that mental direct perception is produced from the earlier sense direct perception apprehending form as its immediately preceding condition. So without that, you can't have the vision of form. And therefore, Excuse me, a blind person cannot see forms. Skipping the quote. Could, could I ask a, just a Yeah. Trying to figure out if I understood what was just said there. It seems like it just said the mental direct is produced from the earlier sense direct. But in the prior when they in the earlier paragraph where it said that its object of apprehension like the sense consciousness its object of apprehension is things such as external forms so it, it it's kind of like which is it is it it's seeing the same object <coughs> seeing and the same a so-called external form Right, so it's still a prime cognition, but <clears throat> excuse me, but the basis for its experience of that same object is a different dominant sense faculty. It's a different dominant condition, and so therefore it um, it sort of gets around the problem of, well, why do you need sense perception? So the different dominant is that it's the mental rather than the sense. <clears throat> the the different dominant condition is that in the in the case of sense perception, the dominant condition is the sense faculty. Right. And in the uh, in the mental direct, the dominant condition is the immediately preceding cognition. Oh, it's not the mental faculty. It's the it's the sense perception. Right. Crazy. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> so that's how they try to get around it. <laughs> um, even though mental direct perception apprehends an object that is different from the object of sense direct perception, which seems to be contradictory to what I just said. Thank you. That. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> from the object. Therefore, it's not a subsequent cognition. Apprehends its own object, which is different from the object I see. It apprehends a different object from the sense cognition. 
I think the idea is that it, it apprehends the sense cognition as its object, as opposed to the outer object. But, but they're, right, they're but not then making it, that clear, are they? But, but then in that earlier paragraph, I'm sorry to go back and say it again, in the earlier paragraph, it did say its object of apprehension is things such as external forms. So it does seem a little contradictory. It does. Just a little. Yeah. So uh, Cynthia went back to 307, the first full paragraph. Uh, unique to Sautrantica is that there is non-conceptual mental direct perception in which a sense consciousness serves as the immediately perceiving condition and for which, like a sense consciousness, its object of apprehension is things such as external forms. They assert that this is set forth in that sutra. Then there's the paragraph on the uh, complaints that are lodged against that in the court of law. And then the next paragraph responds to those complaints. Let's try that again. In the system of the proponents of valid knowledge, the mental direct perception that apprehends forms apprehends its own object. Okay, so it's a different object. <clears throat> which is different from the object apprehended by the sense-direct perception apprehending form that precedes it. Uh, the, only th the only thing I can think of, I think what they're leaving out is that it's, it's a moment later, and so it's a different form. It's a different moment of the same sense object. It's the only thing that makes sense, so to speak. <laughs> But, right, okay, so it seems like it's saying, though, that, so essentially we're saying we have a moment of sense-direct perception, right. followed by a moment of mental-direct perception of the sort of the same object, but a second later. Right. <laughs> and, and, and so it is asserting that mental-direct is, is touching, so to speak, or perceiving the external object directly. Yeah, which which begs the uh, issue of prime versus subsequent cognition. Right, and also it seems like it does go back to that question of why the blind person can't see yeah. forms. I don't know. It's just it. I, it's a little wonky still, but okay. Well, let's continue because I think they discuss it for another few. Please do, yeah. So, so let's see the. Uh, the paragraph, once again, after the quote, even though mental direct perception apprehends an object that's different from the object of sense direct perception, <clears throat> that apprehension of an object is not separated by place or time. Because the earlier sense direct perception is its immediately preceding condition the mental direct perception does not apprehend something that is different in type from the object of sense direct perception. It apprehends something that is different in entity. Therefore, even if, the, if that mental direct perception apprehends an object that is different from the object of the sense direct perception that is its immediately preceding condition, it is asserted that it apprehends only a specific in manifest phenomena. It does not apprehend things that are physically and temporarily remote from each other. And that phrase, the 
physically and temporarily remote from each other is another whole issue. Um, that issue being the way that Vaibhashikas assert that how sense perception happens is that they assert that sense perception is exclusively of objects that are physically and temporarily removed from each other, such as the eye and the object of the eye consciousness. Whereas <clears throat> in the Sautrantika, the object is the aspect in the faculty. And so it's not physically or temporarily um, uh, temporarily remote from the, the observing consciousness. Okay, skipping the quote. On the question of how such mental direct perception is produced, there are three different famous assertions on the, among the schools or scholars. First, <clears throat> the assertion that sense direct perception and mental direct perception alternate. The assertion that three progressions are produced and the assertion that is produced at the end of the sequence of sense direct perception. The first, the assertion that they alternate is the system of Prajnakara Gupta, who wrote a book called whatever. According to this system, the first moment of sense direct perception is produced. First, a moment of sense direct produced, then a moment of mental direct is produced, and then a moment of sense is produced. So they alternate. In brief, sense direct perception leads and mental direct perception concludes. He asserts that sense direct perception and mental direct perception alternate. The second, the assertion that three progressions are produced is the system of the great Brahman Shankarananda, according to which initially a single moment of sense direct perception apprehending form is produced and then, directly induced by that, there are three the first moment of mental direct perception apprehending form, the second moment of the sense direct perception apprehending form, and the reflexive awareness that experiences the two of those are produced simultaneously in moment two. So moment one has one uh, moment of perception, and then um, there's three three moments that come out of them. Let's see. Single moment of sense direct perception, and then directly induced by that, the three, the first moment of mental, uh, the second moment of sense, and the reflexive. So it sounds like four are, are produced simultaneously. There's four cognitions that happen Oh, sorry, there's three cognitions that happen simultaneously in the moment after the first sense perception. You have the mental direct, you have another sense direct, and then you have the reflexive that is aware of both of them. <clears throat> Skipping the next sentence, the next paragraph says, the third, the assertion that mental direct perception is produced at the end of a sequence is the assertion of Dharmotra, according to him, as soon as the last moment of sense-direct perception ceases, it serves as the dominant condition to produce a moment of mental direct perception. He explains the mental consciousness is asserted to be direct perception at the time when the activity of the I itself has 
passed or ceased. When the eye is functioning, everything that knows form only depends on the eye. Otherwise, it would be untenable for any consciousness to depend on the eye. It's a little cryptic. But they try to explain his point, saying, The mental direct perception that is produced at the end of a sequence, sequence of sense direct perception is mental direct perception that knows an object. When each sense direct perception apprehending form is produced in the continuum of a common being, meaning a non-aria, <clears throat> as long as it has the unique function of its dominant condition, the eye sense faculty has its dominant condition, it remains connected to the sequence of that sense direct perception apprehending form. Thus, the sense-direct perception apprehending form that depends on its dominant condition, the eye, is still produced. So there's a series of sense-direct perception depending on the eye. However, when each sense-direct perception apprehending form is being produced, if it does not have the unique function of its dominant condition, the eye sense faculty, then mental-direct perception apprehending form is produced, which is apprehended to the sequence of that sense-direct perception apprehending form, which is the most unhelpful explanation I've read today. Not ever, but <laughs> today, <coughs> I think they're saying, basically, there's a series, he's similarly saying there's a series of sense-direct cognitions, and then when those end, there's a mental-direct cognition. So, unlike the second option, which has a sense direct and a mental direct and a reflexive at the same time. This guy says there's sense direct cognition and then those peter out and then there's mental direct cognition. Um, Dharmotra refutes the first assertion. If things were apprehended sequentially, the experience of them would not be in, uninterrupted it would be interrupted. If sense-direct perception and mental-direct perception were produced alternately each moment, <clears throat> the earlier and later moments of sense-direct perception would be interrupted by mental-direct perception, and our experience of the world would have this very choppy nature to it. Therefore, there would be the fault that sense-direct perception would not be able to apprehend its object without interruption. According to the second assertion of the three types, if sense-direct perception is not produced continuously, it is not able to comprehend its object. Which I think he's saying that there has to be a series of sense-directs in order for there to be comprehension. If you accept that it is produced continuously, there is no opportunity for mental-direct perception to be produced simultaneously with it. Because of this fault, it's proven to be untenable. Therefore, because this third system has arguments proving that the other two are unsuitable, many later Indian and Tibetan scholars of valid knowledge say that its assertion that mental direct perception is produced at the end of a sequence of sense direct perception is direct. And the conundrum <coughs> that was noted earlier by Cynthia remains unresolved, unaddressed adequately. We have to write into the authors and complain to them.
I think Brent has a direct line. Can you take care of that, please? The aspects that appear to consciousness, turning to the way in which a consciousness apprehends an object in general, so Trotig and others, higher schools, assert that when a consciousness comprehends an object, it does through the appearance of the aspect of the object. There are three different assertions about how an aspect appears to a sense consciousness. There's the assertion of the non-pluralist, which is the assertion that many aspects appear to a single consciousness. So when you look at a patch of red or a patch of blue in your field of vision, and um, <coughs> that patch is bigger than one um, heartless particle and therefore has many uh, little dots of blue or red in it, they all are perceived by one consciousness at the same time. So that's the non-pluralist, that one consciousness can have many objects. Does that make sense? So you open your eyes and you see a zillion different colors and shapes and so forth, and they're all perceived by one consciousness is there a significance to the fact that they say many aspects appear as opposed to many objects appear mm, well i think they're just referencing the fact that they um, assert that perception happens through the aspect okay so that's roy lichtenstein say again roy lichtenstein see of the same opinion that's all those dots that's all he did. That's all. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so good, yeah. Many and the impressionists, for that matter, right? Right, right. All the little uh, brush oh, dots. Point, pointillism. Right, the pointillism. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So what you're referring to is the uh, multiplicity of objects as being exaggerated so that we see that that all perception is like that. And it's similar to when they have little uh, examples of like newsprint, photo, uh, like images in newsprint, and they blow it up and you see that there's just like dots and they're unconnected, right? We've all seen those little images. So there's many and, little and dots. That, that's what Roy Lichtenstein... Uh, oh, was famous for. Yes, yes. That's the guy. <clears throat> Okay, we'll have to find some artwork by Roy. There he is. So uh, we got all the dots. Oops, I did it again. Anyway, never mind. Second, there are three different assertions about how an aspect appears to a sense consciousness. One is that even though Roy Lichtenstein might do uh, create works of art with many, many dots on them, when you look at them, um, 
all of those dots that are seen by your eye consciousness register within one consciousness. Then there's the half-agists who argue that you should um, always break the small end of the egg instead of the large end of the egg when you uh, scramble your eggs, which is the assertion that only one aspect appears to one to a single consciousness. So there's as many consciousnesses as there are dots in a Roy Lichtenstein work of art. That's a lot of consciousnesses at the same time. <clears throat> the third option is that the, there's an equal number. Oh wait, the half agus say there's only one aspect appears to a single consciousness. Okay, so they say that all of the dots in Roy's work make up one aspect and all of those appear to one consciousness. That all the dots are summarized into one. And then there's the option of equal number of subjects and objects that for every dot in his painting, there's a consciousness. How these arose has already been explained briefly in chapter 17 of volume seven of volume two. How these assertions are debated will be explained in some detail in the chapter on the Chitta Mantra. In brief, however, for the Sautrantika, using color as an example, blue and the eye consciousness apprehending blue are two different entities. However, blue and <clears throat> the reflection or aspect of blue, which is the nature of the consciousness that is established by that blue, are similar and are cause and effect. That's an interesting assertion. First, they're different phenomena, different entities. And then in the second sentence, they say are similar. So they didn't specify, are they actually different entities that are similar or are they actually uh, the same entities? And they are but, cause and effect. Argue. Well, it's, isn't there a slight difference in that in the first case, I, I may be missing something, but in the first case, they're saying the blue, which is presumably that out there blue thing, and the eye consciousness apprehending that blue are different, okay? But then the second one, it says blue and the reflection or aspect of blue. Oh, I see. So they're saying that the aspect is the nature of consciousness. Okay, I thought they were making a distinction of bringing in the aspect thing as if the aspect was in between the object and the consciousness. But yeah. they're actually saying the aspect is the consciousness? which is the nature of the consciousness that is established by that blue. Yeah, the, the aspect is the, the consciousness morphs into the shape or color of the object. So, well, I guess the question is too, they're saying in, in the first sentence, it's different entities. The second one isn't saying they're the same. It says they're similar. So what does that actually mean? You know? That was my objection. I, I'm That's pretty you. ambiguous. Thank you for agreeing. Yes, I agree. Yes. <laughs> No, I, I was confused though at first because I thought that they that the aspect was not the same as the consciousness. I'm sort of a little lost there. They use the phrase "blue appears" <laughs> to refer to the mind apprehending blue being produced in an aspect that is blue-like. You know, so it's an interesting system. This whole aspect thing, but 
it ends up causing some problems. Therefore, this system asserts that consciousness has aspects. Derek, yes, is, ma'am. Is this um like hearkening back to that thing about the white horse? Is <laughs> is like two different things. <clears throat> the horse and the horse doesn't possess the white. That's a little bit of a different issue. Okay. That's, okay. that's okay. like uh, objects and object uh, possessors. Yeah. Or, or, or objects quality possessors. You know, so like fire and heat. Is the heat of the fire the same relationship as the color of a horse and the horse? And they say, no, that, that it's different, that fire is hot. That's the, the nature of fire. That's its essence. The nature of a horse is not white. No. The nature of a horse is a, a creature with four legs and uh, blah, 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 you know. <clears throat> and the whiteness is an object, is a quality that it has. something like that it's an interesting but is piece. that like a different perception so you you perceive horse and you perceive white well that, that's a good question uh that's a really good question it seems to me that when you perceive what we would call a white horse <laughs> that you perceive simultaneously the color white and you perceive uh, a form that has the shape of what we would call a horse. And you would perceive them differently. You would perceive them separately, which is almost like, what is it, the um, the pluralists or the, the equal numberists? Well, isn't there also the question of I mean, in one sense, as you say, color and shape is what we perceive from a sense perception point of view. And but then we know that it's a horse. Is a conceptual. Right. But then at the same time, they do say that when we perceive, we sort of know what we're perceiving. I mean, the question of whether it's two steps. The sense, or... Yeah, the sense faculty knows it. So the sense faculty knows the color. And it's with, according to certain systems, the sense faculty also knows the entity. But at any rate, but it is there is the difference between what's purely sensory and what is what would seem to be conceptual. Yeah, yeah. These are difficult questions to answer, you know, and it's like they put together one system which quickly doesn't seem to have cohesion, but we would be hard pressed to present a better system, you know, of a better explanation. So it's an interesting quandary. <laughs> the, I think the point of studying them is that it gets you to look at um, how the how perception, in this case, which is a really fundamental aspect of our appearance, of our existence, how that occurs as part of our investigation of our experience. They use the phrase "blue appears." <laughs> They use the phrase blue appears to refer to the mind apprehending blue being produced in an aspect that is blue-like. 
therefore this system asserts that consciousness has aspects. Uh, <coughs> let's see if we skip the quotes. This is like saying that although both the crystal, which is in the second example, quote, and the hue are similar in that they are seen by the sense consciousness. The crystal is understood from its own side, and the hue is understood in the manner of reflection. Let's look at the second example. So Trondrick is say that when a person looks at a clear crystal that has turned the color of a hue that it has been placed next to, both the crystal and whatever the hue is are apprehended by the eye which comes back to uh, Mary Beth's horse that's white. So both are apprehended by the eye. At that time, the crystal itself is apprehended directly. The hue is apprehended through its reflection. Just as the person apprehends both objects, what appears to direct perception is the aspect of the consciousness alone. The basis that appears to, the co to consciousness as color and shape is asserted to be a distinct entity that is a collection of minute particles that do not have space between them and don't touch each other so they don't get contaminated. Therefore, they said that there are two objects, the crystal and the hue, which would uh, refute what we just said about the white horse, that the horse is a conceptual object, but in this case, the crystal is also the object of the consciousness and we have an example of a crystal <laughs> well the white hue doesn't you need like a different color i think <laughs> you have blue now i was just using it for it to show the differences but but it, um i mean there's a slight <clears throat> from a white horse in that the white horse sort of carries its color with it for what it's worth right it's, this is an example of something that takes on whatever color it's next. right it's a chameleon the crystal is a chameleon yeah this is like saying that although both the crystal and the hue are similar and that they are seen by the sense consciousness the crystal is understood from its own side and the hue is understood in the manner of a reflection the final point proving that consciousness has an aspect is this if the mind, which is by nature luminous, were to perceive an external object vividly, without an aspect, the object would become the nature of luminosity. <laughs> because that's what uh, consciousness experiences, the luminosity. And if one asserts that is the nature of luminosity, there would be the fault that blue and so forth would be luminous independently of the consciousness apprehending it. It's a fine point. That consciousness, uh, eye consciousness, apprehends luminosity. And so they're saying that the blue would, uh, the object would, would be luminous as opposed to reflective, um, would, would be luminous independently of the consciousness um, apprehending it. In this system, the idea is that consciousness illuminates objects, which is a really subtle and uh, not very well explained point, because they didn't explain the luminosity part. Um, therefore, the clear appearing of objects, which goes back to the definition of mind, that's, which is clear and reflective, clear and knowing. Um, 
lamps of the luminous quality. Therefore, the clear appearing of objects such as blue color is consciousness. <clears throat> the basis that appears as blue is a phenomena of subtle particles. And this means that Sautrant accept that phenomena exists externally in any case Regarding the way sense consciousness apprehends its object, Vaibhasha explains that the sense consciousness apprehends an object that is simultaneous with itself. Sautrantika, however, asserts that the objects of apprehension of a sense consciousness and the sense consciousness are cause and effect, and therefore are not simultaneously. If they're not simultaneous, how does the sense consciousness apprehend it? Although the object of apprehension of the sense consciousness has ceased, the uh, by experiencing the aspect of the consciousness projected by the object they assert that the object of apprehension is experienced simultaneous to the uh, experience of it <laughs> which which means that the aspect is the moment after of the uh, actual object Dharmakirti says because there are different times how is the object apprehended masters of reasonings know that the cause that has the capacity to establish the aspect of consciousness is the object that is to be perceived. He's talking about the aspect. And also, apart from the thing that is the cause, there's nothing else to be called the object. That which appears to the mind is said to be its object. <laughs> what a cryptic guy this Dharmakirti is. Why can't I explain things clearly? Just say what you mean, man. This is saying that the object of apprehension of a sense consciousness must be one of its causes. <laughs> the object of apprehension of a sense consciousness must be one of its causes. That makes a lot of sense, I think. No pun intended. <coughs> uh, there is no object of apprehension other than the observed object condition of that sense consciousness. By definition, the object of apprehension of a sense consciousness is the is called the object condition of that sense consciousness. Given that such an object appears directly to that sense consciousness, it must be said that it is the object of apprehension. In summary, both Sautrantika and Chittamatra, which arose from the text and valid knowledge by Dugnaga and his buddy Dharmakirti, are similar to the in their presentation of inference for oneself and inference for others. Two of the four major topics in Dharmakirti's commentary on valid cognition. And in the proof that the meaning of words arises through excluding what is other, the, the notion of apoha, exclusion, that uh, we come up with the with generally characterized phenomena, ideas, images, concepts, by excluding what is not what we are thinking about. <clears throat> In the general presentation of minds that is apprehended, uh, both systems, Sautrantika and Chittamatra, are similar. Um, and in the proof that awareness has two modes of uh, other awareness and self awareness. In addition, the Sautrantika zone system is based on the position that asserts the existence of external objects. For example, they assert that other knowing direct perception like an eye consciousness apprehending form is produced <coughs> by taking an external object as the object of apprehension and based on that 
they take the first delineation of the presentation's valid knowledge and its effect to be the correct position. I'm not sure what they're talking about. They take the first delineation to be the correct position. They take the first delineation. The first as opposed to the second or third. Is he going back to the three options that were presented here? Uh, it's possible. Thus, from among the four Buddhist schools of tenets of India, this completes the rough presentation of the tenets of Sautrantika, which asserts reflexive awareness and that external objects are truly established. Okay, that's the complicated version. Let's see if Kunchok Jigme Wangpo has uh, a different way of presenting these silly things. Okay. Uh, so we have the... Uh, this breakdown of prime cognition and non-prime cognition, which we went through and is not that important. It's going to go through all those types in detail. Let's skip that. <clears throat> Let's see if we can come up with the, uh, the issues that we just went over. Turn. Assertions on the path. No. So where is that? <laughs> okay. They don't even get into it. This guy is probably smart to do that. Okay, so now let's look at Mipom. I think Mipom has some interesting things to add to the situation. And we haven't, I sort of went over like little bits of Mipom earlier one time, but not, not in a thorough way. So let's look at Mipom, <coughs> which begins on page one. Hopefully you have that back it handy. The concise summary of Buddhist philosophy is the Buddhist philosophy section from his text called The Wish-Fulfilling Treasury by Mipam Jamyang Namgyal, translated by Douglas Duckworth in his book Tibetan Buddhist Philosophy of Mind and Nature in the Appendix. Uh, so there's two, Hinayana Mahayana, Anyone has disciples. We went through this, the schools, the nature. We went through these. Uh, let's go through, there's philosophy, common assertions. There's seven assertions, objective four truths. The assertion of the objective four truths. Um, <clears throat> one thing that's interesting here is the second paragraph in the assertions of objective four truths says the origin. So he's going through the four, what we call the four noble truths. The origin is the aspect of the cause of that suffering is both karma and afflictions. There is karma that is intent, which is mental karma. And there is karma that is that which is intended, which are physical and verbal actions. So karma encompasses all three gates 
of a sentient being. Uh, let's see, the assertion of components as ultimate, uh, the consummate foundational component of macro forms, <laughs> macro forms is the indivisible particle. And the indivisible moment is the foundational component of consciousness. These two exist ultimately. They compose a macro phenomena. Uh, the assertion of the arhat as the consummate nirvana. They claim arhats who pass into nirvana without remainder do not fall into samsara because the causes for being born in the three realms have been exhausted. So they present the idea of there being an arhat who completely disappears from <clears throat> samsara. Um, and let's see, skipping the footnote, also they do not become Buddhas because they have the determined heritage of an arhat, like a butter lamp that has run out of oil. They certainly pass into nirvana. What that cryptic statement means is that uh, from the point of view of certain parts of the Mahayana tradition, there's this idea that all sentient beings have a, a what is translated here as the determined heritage. Uh, Chung Rimshe uh, spoke of these as genes, and it's the gotra. The gotra is the sort of family lineage, the inheritance. And there's five types of inheritance. There's the inheritance of a Buddha, which is called, makes you a Bodhisattva, inheritance of a Pratyeka Buddha, inheritance of a Shravaka, and then inheritance of uh, those whose fate is uh, undetermined and uh, could go either way, so to speak. And then there's the inheritance of those who are called cut off, who will never become enlightened. And that is a common feature of the earlier schools that they felt that certain people would never become enlightened. And they felt <coughs> um, that you had to sort of have the predisposition to become Shravaka or Pratyeka Buddha in order for that to happen and also of a Buddha and that uh, there's basically only one person who has that predisposition every Kalpa which is the one that turns out to be the one and only Buddha of each Kalpa. They deny the base consciousness, they deny the Mahayana, they deny the ten grounds of a, Bodhis of a, a Bodhisattva and the assertion of the Buddha as an individual they say only the best beings, those who can forbear samsara for countless aeons through training in the disciples' path and gathering accumulations for many aeons become Buddhas. This is the so-called Hinayana view of uh, those who become Buddha, which is only the best beings. Other ordinary beings cannot because suffering of samsara is great and they're not able to perform the benefit of truly, of unruly, sorry, sentient beings. Therefore, the Buddha is a sublime person. Uh, however, an individual, however, he's not an emanation body, he's not an Amarikaya, <clears throat> because there is a remainder, the aspect of maturation, such as him bleeding and hurting his back. And so they're referring to the fact that in the sutras, he recounts getting sick and having various physical ailments. And the Hinayanas say, well, he's just an individual. He's not an emanation. He's not an Ramanakaya. He's a Buddha, but he still has the remainder of a, of a sentient being in the form of a physical body. Uh, the Buddha is not constantly in meditative equipose either, because 
as he himself says in his sutra, he gets up from samadhi and goes on alms rounds. And this is a frequent thing that he says in the sutras. He says, the Buddha got up from his samadhi and went on the alms rounds, as is said in the scriptures. After passing a nirvana, his benefit to being ends, ceases. Kaput, over, done, show, over, game, over. Also, Mipam refers to, he refutes these. <laughs> the four truths are not established. Um, refuting the components is ultimate. He says there's no uh, minute material particles. And uh, he asserts there's no um, ultimate moment of time as well. We don't have to go through this argument. We've seen it many times. He refutes on the bottom of page five, the arhat is consummate, the arhat is not the consummate nirvana because it established that what is to be abandoned, the entirety of obscurations of heritage, of inheritance, has not been exhausted. They possess the heritage of the nature of a Buddha. So Mipam is laying his Mahayana slant on the situation and saying, no, all, all beings have Buddha nature and are of the heritage of the nature of Buddha, which is the luminous and clear nature of mind. So Buddha nature is the luminous and clear nature of mind. In case you were wondering what Buddha nature is, the defiant ones are adventitious or spurious. They are not inherent to the um, what's here called the heritage. <clears throat> it is impossible for the continuity of mind to cease while the entirety of defilements has not been exhausted because the causes for um, are complete for a mental body to be propelled. Um, <laughs> this is a cryptic way of saying that uh, nirvana is not really the final act of a arhat because, but, sorry. Oh. Sorry, no, I just wondered though when it says the entirety of defilements has not been exhausted in, in his context here, but the, the, the Sautantrika view or the earlier school's view of the arhat is that they do exhaust the defilements, right? So is there a, a subtle difference between what they count as defilements? There is. The, the Sautantrikas actually say that, uh, do not assert that they have uh, um, uh, overcome the entirety of, or exhausted the entirety of defilements, but only the defilements to liberation. Only the defilements that cause liberation and not the defilements that you mean the obscurations. The obscurations to liberation as opposed to the obscurations to omniscience. That the Sautrantika, the Hinayana schools readily admit that our hearts are not uh, eliminating the obscurations to omniscience, only the obscurations to uh, liberation. So that's the cognitive side. <clears throat> right. Okay. So essentially, they've they've eliminated klesha, but they have not eliminated the, I guess, uh, yeah, the cognitive uh, obscuration. That's correct. Okay. They need to train from the beginning and the two accumulations to uh, complete the abandonment and realization, which are the two uh, results of Buddhahood abandonment as well as realization. Arhats accomplish abandonment and not realization from the Mahayana point of view. 
uh, they don't actually, f they don't accomplish both of them completely, as we just talked about in terms of the defilements. They don't abandon all of them. Uh, let's see, the the base consciousness, Ali Vishnana, the non-existence of the base consciousness also is untenable because there would be no continuous process if there were no base consciousness, which is the support for continuity of the so-called person. Taking a body in samsara, averting samsara would not be possible because there would be no support for predispositions, etc. So there would be no like karmic continuum. If there was no base consciousness, also it would not be reasonable for the mind to arise again after a cessation of the sixfold collection of consciousness. This is the point of like, if you enter into a cessation trance, uh, why would you re-arise as a sentient being again if there were no base consciousness that had uh, still continued to operate during that cessation? Um, in which the mind is absent because the continuity would cease and there would be no perpetuating cause. Furthermore, all appearances are established as mind through reasoning by the power of fact. <laughs> and a limited, you know, there's there's different reasonings. There's the power of fact, there's the power of um, logic, and then, or inference, and then there's the power of uh, 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 reputable or reliable report, i.e. scriptures attributed to the Buddha. And the supreme, re, uh, the supreme um, reasoning is that by virtue of fact, which is the experience of the uh, direct valid cognition. Um, <coughs> and so he's saying that everything is mind is established through direct valid cognition is interesting assertion that he doesn't give support for in this case at this point a limited cognition is not possible to act as the support for predispositions hence it should be known that there is a common foundation the base consciousness and uh, he refutes the denial of the Mahayana and the ten grounds the ten grounds he says there are ten grounds because one is unable to complete all the accumulations without attaining the powers on the grounds of an ordinary being and there are many obstacles in the path due to having many difficulties it's a little bit uh, confusing what is this without attaining the powers on the ground of an ordinary being you would think he would be talking about uh, extraordinary beings therefore even after the sublime path has been attained and one becomes an extraordinary being it is reasonable that there are accumulations to be gathered also there is a means of establishment I think he's saying that um, the Hinayana so-called Hinayana schools accept that there is uh, the accumulation um, of uh, of uh, there there are the there are accumulations before the first boomi, so there should also be the accumulation of powers uh, after the first boomi, something like that. <clears throat> then, even after the sublime path has been attained through the path of seeing. It is reasonable that there are accumulations to be gathered. <clears throat> also, there's a means of establishment. This does not contradict the progression arising of the remedies for the ten obscurations to be eliminated, which are the wisdoms of the ten grounds. Interesting. So it's sort of like if you define Buddhahead as 
Buddhahood, rather, as the uh, overcoming of ten obscurations, which are overcome on the ten grounds, then you need to accomplish the ten grounds in order to become Buddha. Uh, refuting the Buddha as an individual, if the Buddha were an individual person with the maturation of karma, then the Buddha would not have eliminated obscurations and ignorance. There's no way he could have actually become the Buddha if he was just an individual, according to Nipam. <clears throat> it's like if he's not already the Buddha, how could he have become the Buddha? It's in really interesting logic, right? If the Buddha were an individual person with the maturation of karma, then the Buddha would not have eliminated obscurations and ignorance. Also, if the benefit of being ceased upon attaining nirvana, do you have an objection to that logic? <laughs> how could well, you? Yes. How could you? Uh, I agree. Doesn't that deny the whole process? The whole. Sorry, uh, doesn't that deny the whole prospect for everybody else having Buddha nature? Well, we all, we all, yeah, we all have Buddha nature, so uh, we're not individual persons. I don't know. It's it's uh, we're we're gonna oh. have to revisit this later. He's gonna have to okay, defend so, this point. Okay, I mean, so what you're saying is you would have to sort of expand this and saying review, refuting the notion of individual altogether. I guess so, but it's hard to assert that we are individual persons are not individual persons. Yeah, this uh, that's really odd. It's, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Which is not the first time, right? <laughs> no. Also, if the benefit of being ceased upon attaining nirvana, that it would not be reasonable for such a limited individual with compassion to be omniscient. I love that one. If if uh, if the Buddha's um, powers were so limited that they ceased upon attaining nirvana. Um, then there's no way he could possibly be omniscient. When the essence of luminous clarity, free from all defilements, is actualized at the time of a Buddha, which is this cryptic way of describing the difference in Buddha nature between an ascension being and a Buddha, is that in a Buddha, the Buddha nature is actualized. I've been actualized. <laughs> It's like you, you become made in the mafia, right? You're a maid, man. Those, those words are always so tricky because you know, other traditions will, will knock that right over and say that it, it was there all along and no no difference. Like that You're quite the upstart tonight, aren't oh, you? Oh, I'm so sorry. I'll, I'll shut up. <laughs> I'm kidding. There are various appearances uh, in a magical manifestation of emanations due to the influence of disciples to be trained. In other words, the Buddha will continue to manifest infinitely for uh, beings as long as there are beings, as long as there is space. However, this is not established in the way of an ordinary individual. <clears throat> Assertions of the Vibhashikas. There are seven, the five bases of knowledge, and let's just go through them rather than reading them beforehand. The assertion of five bases. We all know should know at this point, what are the five bases? First, the bases of material form, uh, which are 11, the four causal, which are the elements, the um, and the 11 resultant, which 11 resultant, okay, there's 15, which are the five faculties, the actual uh, subtle, matter that makes up the faculties and their objects plus imperceptible forms one of the most magical innovative creations of the buddhist tradition is non-form form 
the base the basis and that leads to the the system of the consequentialists where they just point out absurdity <clears throat> the base second the basis of main minds either six uh, in this tradition thirdly the basis of uh, mental factors or states uh, there's 51 of those and the in the interim they list those i'm going to skip that and the fourth is non-associated formations of which Mipom says there are 23 that are substantially different from matter and mind um, and he lists all of them and then finally the basis of the unconditioned uh, that are three that do not arise from causes and conditions space and the two types of cessation the assertion of disintegration so <clears throat> these individuals say, say that everything exists and then there's certain uh, sort of energies that govern the way that they exist, which are the non-associated formations and included in those energies or, or principles or laws of the way things exist, similar to the way we say, well, there's gravity or there's things like gravity. They say there's arising, subsisting, uh, aging and disintegrated. And these four characteristics Sorry, these four characterize conditioned phenomena by means of four further characterizing properties, which are the same of the same. <laughs> they, they, they add in the, those gradations. <laughs> and um, <coughs> don't really need to read through that, but it's uh, uh, at the end of the paragraph, he says, moreover, they assert that what is characterized and its property are different like a house that is characterized by the presence of a cow <laughs> or a crow, sorry. <laughs> um, disintegration is uh, extrinsic, so it's a different entity that acts upon the other entities. The assertion of the three times is substantially established. Let's see how he describes that. They assert that the past and the future exist on their own, so that all three times substantially exist in the present. <clears throat> when it is said, as such, it would follow that the past and future would be seen, if you object in that way. They respond that the past and future are not seen because they are concealed by having ceased in the case of the past and having not arisen in the case of the future. But uh, they claim that this is not like, uh, but they claim that they exist as ceased and not arisen phenomena, the three times. Very, very creative, <laughs> these gentlemen <laughs> in their absurdity. Uh, let's see, the assertion of an inexpressible self. They assert a single self who is the performer of actions and the experiencer of their results needs to be asserted because the causal relationship is otherwise untenable. And uh, therefore we assert that the self is neither the same as the aggregates nor different from them. It's also inexpressible as either permanent or impermanent. And the assertion of this inexpressible self is a claim of the Vatsipatriyas and so forth and is not held by all of Vipashtha's schools. It is set forth here because it is claimed by a specific faction and it's easy to make fun of. So he included it here, I think. Why else would he include it if it's only one school? <clears throat> the assertion of cognition is not aware of itself or objects. 
It is not suitable for cognition to be self-aware because cognition cannot be something known and a means of knowledge at the same time. Also, cognitive faculties are aware of objects directly, not through the medium of an aspect. However, in cognition, there are no representations like in a crystal ball. Hence, an object is simply, cleanly, directly known. The assertion of a property and what it characterizes as distinct. They claim, in the case of a bovine, <laughs> I think we're missing the word of, of, in the case of a bovine, the dewlap characterizes the cow. What is the dewlap? Something that hangs below their chin is like a big double chin or something? Uh, is that is that their uh, like their second stomach or something like they digest there? Am I thinking of other animals that have like no? It's just a big double chin. The dewlap. Okay. <clears throat> These three, what is characterized, i.e., the bovine, the property of having a dewlap, and the instantation. <laughs> in the case of a cow, exists as substantially different in the Vaibhashika tradition. If they were the same, then object and agent would be the same, and this is untenable. So everything exists. Everything exists in the Vaibhashika. The assertion of the non-perishable substance, acquisition of like karma, which is the specific non-associated formation. It's uh, among the five bases, it's number four, is uh, performed karma called the non-perishing. It is like uh, a loan document. Its essence is neutral and through its force the continuity of karma does not cease. So this is how they explain karma. <clears throat> Mipam investigates these. All the cause and resultant forms are refuted by the refutation of the new particles. We'll skip that. Going to disintegration he says it refers to a conditioned phenomenon like a pot that does not remain for a second instant from the time it was established. The specific properties of a conditioned phenomenon abide like the wetness of water. However, if there were disintegration separate from that entity, then the entity itself would not disintegrate and disintegration would be causeless. If, the, if disintegration is separate from the entity, there's no way that the disintegration as one entity can disintegrate another entity because entities th that are real have uh, an essence of what they are. And <laughs> I don't know, they, they just uh, feel that <clears throat> that doesn't make sense. And if the disintegration is thereby not disintegrating the phenomena that it's meant to in their system to disintegrate, then it's not doing its job and it gets fired and um, disintegration would be causeless. This follows because an entity that is separate, that is separate from disintegration would not be disintegrating and disintegration would remain independently apart from entities. So you'd have these entities called disintegration like all over the place. You could collect them. <laughs> I know that was absurd, sorry. Um, what would be designated as the cause for its disintegration? If an entity and its disintegration are simultaneous, then an entity does not disintegrate by that cause. Because 
if the phenomena, if they're simultaneous, then it hasn't done its job. If they occur at different times, then disintegration is meaningless because disintegration is disintegrating something that exists at a different time period. We've seen the Madhyamakas use this sequential uh, argument. Investigating this three times, they're not substantially established because everything would be the present if entities which ceased in the past and have not yet arisen in the future were to presently exist. If it is said the past exists merely as the property of what has ceased in its past, we respond that this is merely absurd. Oh, I mean imputation. It is not substantially established in reality. Substantially established meaning being the object of direct valid cognition. Time is merely convention applied in dependence upon entities. It does not exist to the slightest degree as an autonomous, autonomous substance time. <clears throat> the inexpressible self does not exist because there's no third alternative within a direct contradiction of being the same or different from the ag aggregates um, or being permanent or impermanent. So the inexpressible self is a fiction. It's a logical uh, fallacy. Therefore, it should be known that since it cannot be expressed as one of the four alternatives, the self is not an entity. Cognition is not aware of itself. It is untenable that cognition is not aware of itself because self-awareness expresses merely conventionally the clear experience uh, in one's continuum of whatever one experiences, such as pleasure and so forth, without relying on anything else. And you see that Mipam uh, says that self-awareness exists conventionally, not ultimately. If this did not exist, all the conventions of perception would not make sense. Hence, it would follow that all presentations of conventional confined perception would vanish like smoke. Uh, the faculties which are material do not have the capacity to cognize objects of cognition, do not have various representations of appearing objects. Absurd consequence would follow, such as objects not appearing. Thus, their position is refuted. It seems that he. Uh, shifted to another topic, which is the direct cognition of objects. I guess he put them both here. Investigating property and what is characterized as distinct, other than just being selected out of what is mutually dependent, a property and what is characterized by it are not separate in reality. This follows because if fire were different from heat, it would follow that feed could, heat rather <laughs> could be cold. <laughs> if it lost its heat, then you would have a cold fire. That would be cool. Cold fire. That sounds like a nice name for like an album or something. Cold fire. Since fireless seed is not found anywhere, fire and heat are not the same. Investigating non-perishable. The non-perishable substance is nothing other than the production of the effects of an action because an action and its effects are just mutually dependent. There's no means of establishing the existence of an entity called the non-perishing substance that is separate from material form and mind, as in the Vaibhashika system of uh, the non-associated phenomena called non-perishing substance. Also, acquisition is refuted in general, <clears throat> specifically such a substance. Uh, acquisition is untenable and invalidated by reasoning there being no purpose or power in it and so forth. And uh, we'll leave the assertions of the Sautrantikas to go through next week along with the Chittamatrans from our 
main text, the science and philosophy in the Indian Buddhist classics. So yeah, we'll also go through uh, Mipam on the Sautrantika for starters to sum that up. Comments, questions, assertions, announcements. I have an announcement. I had a I had a vision of uh, my tutelary deity came to me and said, enough with all this conceptual classes and texts and books. We need to get back to meditation. And you should focus on uh, the presentation of Shamatha and Vipassana in the book called Moonbeams of Mahamudra. So I thought maybe we could take a break after this before we launch into the middle way and uh, uh, spend some time talking about uh, meditation again using the uh, the book Moonbeams of Mahamudra and uh, go through that in the next course or two. I hope that's okay with people. Are people upset? I know I've been building up to uh, Chandra Kirti for quite some time and it must be, it would probably be a big uh, disappointment. Oh, good. Okay. We have a couple of acceptances. <laughs> Okay, cool idea. Thank you for suggesting it. I really appreciate that. So let's close by dedicating the merit. By this merit, may all attain omniscience, may it defeat the enemy of all doing. From the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness and death, from the ocean of samsara, may I free all beings by the confidence of the golden sun of the great east, may the lotus garden of the Rigdon's wisdom bloom. May the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled. May all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. Here, here. Thank you. Great to see you all. Thank you. Be well. See you next week in the world of mind only.